All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. Uh, see, we have a handful of visitors. Uh, right now we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're nearing the end. What we do hear most often is uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. So you guys are jumping in kind of toward the end here. But we're, uh, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we come to Mark's account of our Lord's trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Uh, we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Likewise, we, we just confessed in the Nicene Creed that he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. The text before us is a big part of the story of redemption, for it was before the Roman governor Pilate that our Lord was sentenced to be crucified. It was at the verdict and direction of Pilate that our Lord was sent to the cross where he accomplished his work of salvation for sinners. As we come to the text this morning, we come to bear witness to the greatest miscarriage of justice that the Gentiles have ever committed, the condemnation of the Son of God. Two weeks ago, we witnessed the greatest miscarriage of justice that the Jews had ever committed as our Lord was on trial before the Sanhedrin. Truly, he was condemned by all that he might have mercy on all. We will see this morning that our Lord, though he did no wrong and no guilt was found in him, was condemned to death as if he were a guilty man. We will see the chief priests lie and twist his words in order to accuse him. We will see the crowds cry out for his crucifixion without any reason for doing so. And we will see Pilate condemn the spotless, sinless Lamb of God to the death of the cross while knowing that he was innocent of any wrongdoing. We will bear witness to injustice this morning, but by doing so, we will see things in the text that instruct us, call us to repentance, and call us to glory in Christ crucified for sinners. Now, a couple of notes about this sermon before we begin. Uh, first, to get the fullest picture of what happened at this trial, you need to read and harmonize the parallel accounts in Matthew 27, Luke 23, Mark 15, and John 18. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm telling you, it's the Lord's Day. Go home and read those four chapters and, and, and see how they all fit together to look at the whole picture. Uh, I plan on sticking fairly close to Mark's account and making only a few references to the parallels. Uh, a second thing I want to say, um, and this is maybe just to prepare you a little bit, uh, when I preach, I usually try to find a unifying theme of the passage and drive that point home as I make some related sub-points. Uh, but this past week, I didn't really see that in the text. Um, that could maybe just be on me. Uh, but I did see multiple things in this text that I believe are profitable for us to think on together this morning. And I'm telling you this so that you're not confused if you say, well, what did the third point have to do with the first two? Right? I'm, I'm telling you ahead of time, maybe it doesn't. Although all things are related in Scripture. Um, I often find devotional commentaries that point out various things in a text, even if they're unrelated, to be very edifying, encouraging, and warming to my heart. Uh, J.C. Ryle is king of that, by the way. Get his commentaries on the Gospels. Um, and I suppose this sermon is kind of in that vein of things. So I just wanted to let you know, uh, if you were wondering, why is this a little bit different? It's because it is a little bit different. Uh, this morning, we will consider five things together. First, how the injustice done to Christ that this trial highlights the heinous nature of sin. Second, we will consider the silent love of Christ. Third, the sovereignty of God over the wicked actions of men. Fourth, 
Barabbas and Jesus as a picture of the gospel? And fifth, the choice between Barabbas and Jesus. Uh, may God bless us as we're instructed in his word this morning. With that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is glorious. It makes the simple wise. It strengthens the weak. It encourages the faint-hearted. And it points sinners to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it does so because you bless the proclamation of your word and reading of your word and apply it to our hearts. And so we ask this morning that you would bless us by opening our hearts to receive the word of God with humility, reverence, obedience, and faith. Speak to us today. By your Holy Spirit, rebuke us, grant us repentance, encourage our faint hearts, and show us our Savior, your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Glorify yourself today through the preaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Let's begin by walking through this text a bit, and I'll kind of retell it and point out some things as we go so that we can get a good handle on, on what happened at this trial. Mark begins by telling us, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders, scribes, and the whole council. So the Sanhedrin, who had just met a few hours before, assembles again after their illegal night trial. And they did so for a couple of reasons. First, possibly to give the appearance of legality. The Sanhedrin wasn't allowed to reach verdicts at night, so what do they do? They meet first thing in the morning after they had already reached a verdict, make things look good. Remember, they want to look very good on the outside, though inside they're filled with malice toward the Lord. These are the same people who won't go into Pilate's house because they don't want to become unclean so that they can partake of the Passover, but they have no problem murdering the Son of God. These people are hypocrites who want to appear righteous. So they're meeting in the day to ratify the guilty verdict they came to just a few hours later. That's probably what's going on. But there's a second thing going on here. Mark says they held a consultation. What are they consulting one another about? 
Well, they, they, they met because they had to agree on what charges to bring before Pilate. Um, they, they had agreed Jesus deserves to be executed for blasphemy the night before. But you see, the Romans reserved the right to execute criminals. And they guarded this very, very heavily. So the Sanhedrin couldn't carry out the death sentence that they had passed on Jesus. That's one. So they have to get Pilate to agree. Second, Pilate would not care at all about their religious laws concerning blasphemy. Pilate hated Jews. Most Romans did. He could have cared less about Judaism. So if they take Jesus to Pilate saying, he blasphemed our God by saying he's the son of God, and he deserves to die for his blasphemy, Pilate would say, that's not my problem. I don't care about your Jewish religion. He's committed no capital crime in the eyes of Rome. Deal with it yourself. I don't care. And so the Sanhedrin held a consultation to try to figure out what they were going to accuse Jesus of that the Roman government would agree is a capital offense. So having agreed on a charge, Mark writes, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So what was their charge? Pilate's question to Jesus actually reveals the charge. Are you the king of the Jews? And I'm sure Pilate said that sarcastically. You, this beaten man in chains before me, are you the king of the Jews? The Sanhedrin told Pilate that Jesus deserved to die because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And this is technically correct. Technically correct. At the trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus confessed that he is the Christ. Are you the Christ? I am. I am. And the Christ, that is the Messiah, is the son of David. That is the heir to David's throne, the promised king that God had promised to the Jews who would save them. Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews, for he is the Messiah. But as we read in John 18, Jesus explains to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he is not the king of an earthly nation. He did not come to found a geopolitical nation. He came to establish the kingdom of God and bring sinners into it through his cross. He came to establish God's rule over the world in the hearts of his people as the gospel spreads and spreads. But he did not come to overthrow the Roman government by military means. But the Sanhedrin twists his words. They twisted his words. They took his claim to be the Messiah and made it out to be a claim against Caesar. It's, it, it, it's something like this. The logic runs like this. This Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate, we know that Caesar is king of the Jews. So Jesus is a threat to Caesar's rule and must be planning some kind of revolution against Rome. And Pilate would have taken that very seriously. This is sedition. This is treason against Caesar. This is a real threat to Rome. And this is a capital offense. See the hypocrisy here real quick? I was talking to Pastor Stephen about this. The Jews hate Rome. The religious leaders hate Rome, right? The chief priests, though they would get in bed with Rome to make money, they hate Rome as well. But here they're acting as if they're friends of Caesar and want to protect the Roman Empire from an insurrectionist, though the chief priests will later stir up the crowd to ask for a convicted insurrectionist. They lie through their teeth and twist the words of Jesus and act hypocritically in order to get Pilate to condemn the Lord. You can, you can taste the hypocrisy as you read this passage. According to, to John chapter 18, Pilate asks Jesus privately, 
if he's the king of the Jews. And then a conversation that Mark doesn't record, a pretty lengthy conversation you can read ensues between Pilate and Jesus about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. And Mark doesn't record any of that. He only tells us the bare-bone facts of the trial, as Mark often does. Mark tells us, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. You have said so. Here, Jesus, this is an affirmation. This is functionally Jesus saying, yes. But his answer is a bit veiled, right? You've said so. It's a, it's a bit veiled. And many commentators think, and I tend to agree with them, that Jesus means something like this. You have said that I am a king. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. But I'm not a king like you think of a king. So you've said so. You've said so. He doesn't deny it. He's saying, yes, you're right, but not like you think. You see, for Pilate and Jesus, being king of the Jews means two radically different things. Pilate thinks of a king like Caesar. Pilate thinks of things political. But Jesus means kings, king of the Jews with regard to salvation, with regard to eternal life, with regard to the fulfillment of prophecy, with, the regard, uh, with regard to the reign of God over his people in the world. But after this, our Lord doesn't speak again at his trial. Again, John 18 tells us he had a private conversation with Pilate about the nature of his kingdom, and he affirmed that indeed he is the king of the Jews, and then he is finished talking. But Mark tells us that the chief priests accused him of many things. So they accuse him that he says he's a king, he says, yes, I am, he remains silent, and they continue to accuse him of things. Now, beyond his claim to be the king of the Jews, Mark records nothing else. But Luke 23, verse 2, records them as saying this. We found this man, see, see their disdain for him, they won't even use his name. We found this man misleading our nation, there's one charge, misleading our nation, that's, that's stirring up problems in our nation, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Right? Now, th th those are all serious accusations against the Lord, and the first two are lies. He wasn't stirring up any problems within the nation. He wasn't stirring up any, anything against Rome. Second, Jesus explicitly told them to pay their taxes. That's a flat fabrication. And the third thing that they accuse him of is a twisting of his words. And yet he remains silent. He remains silent. Mark tells us that his silence amazed Pilate. Verse 5, Pilate was amazed. This is, this is probably because to remain silent was a form of accepting the charges against you. Pilate's shocked that Jesus won't fight back. Prisoners being accused of capital crimes aren't silent like this. Pilate's never seen someone be quiet when they know that crucifixion is on the table for them. He's never seen anyone be quiet like this. What do, what do men do when you accuse them of a capital crime? They freak out. They fight for their lives. They give the best defense that they can possibly give. They won't shut up usually until the, the person in charge tells them to shut up. But here Jesus says nothing. He says he's the king of the Jews, and then he says nothing else. He is full of quiet, calm, majestic tranquility as he stands before Pilate. I'm sure the Roman governor had never seen anything like this before. John 18 tells us that after his talk with Jesus, Pilate told the Jewish rulers, I find no guilt in this man. He believed that Jesus was innocent and did not deserve death. He explicitly said, I find no guilt in him. Now, let's be clear, Pilate wasn't a believer. He wasn't. We have no indication that Pilate ever became one. But Pilate could see what the chief priests were trying to do. Verse 10 says that he recognized it was out of their envy toward Jesus that they wanted him to be crucified. 
They're envious of what? His popularity with people. If the people listen to him, they'll no longer listen to them. And they can't stand that, and they want him dead. Mark then tells us in verse 6 about an odd tradition that Pilate had started as a governor. Each year at Passover, it was Pilate's custom to release a condemned prisoner. He let the Jews uh, decide and cry out their choice, and then he let the one that they chose go. This is probably for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, to gain favor with the Jews under his rule. He was a really bad governor who did all kinds of terrible things. By the way, just real quick, this isn't in my notes. Pilate was like a third-rate governor. If you're stationed in Judea, that's not good. You've messed up somewhere along the line. That's not a high-profile place. We think of Jerusalem as like, well, who doesn't want to go to Jerusalem? Answer, nobody back then wanted to go to Jerusalem. And yet here he is, the governor of that place, and he governed that place for about 13 years, which means he never could climb up in rank. Pilate was a failure at his job. You can read the histories. uh, Did terrible things to the Jews. There were constant fights, constant insurrections. He was awful, awful at his job. So he's probably letting prisoners go once a year to gain favor with these people. And secondly, to probably also try to encourage them to view the Roman Empire as noble and gracious. Right? Think of the movie 300, I'm a kind God. Right? It's probably something like that toward them. But in verse 7, Mark tells us that there was a man named Barabbas who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, we don't know what insurrection that this was, but apparently Barabbas and some other men had staged something of a small revolution against Rome. This was pretty common back then, actually. Uh, But obviously they did not succeed, and Barabbas was sentenced to death for his crime. And the crowd went to Pilate and asked him to do as he usually did for them, release a prisoner for us. They wanted Pilate... So again, to release a prisoner, and Pilate thought that maybe he could get them to choose Jesus. Remember, Pilate thinks he's innocent. Pilate's a coward. He's not willing to just do the right thing. So he's like, maybe I can get them to do the right thing for me. Mark tells us, he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Right? Do, Do you want me to release Jesus? But Mark tells us that the chief priests had already gotten to the crowd, and they instructed them to choose Barabbas, the murderer and rebel instead. And the, cr- and the crowd blindly listened to their religious rulers, and they cried out for Barabbas's release. So Pilate said to them, then why he would ask them this, I, I don't know. Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What should I do with him then? Maybe he was willing to release too. Well, what should I do with him then? If they say release, I'll, I'll release. By this point, Pilate had already scourged Jesus, You can read that in John 18. Uh, Scourging, Jesus had already been beaten with what some historians call the cat of nine tails. It's a nine nine leather straps on a whip with pieces of sharp bone and metal in them. Often people died during this beating. We'll talk about it more next week, Lord willing. But So Jesus has already been beaten severely nearly to the point of death. And Pilate perhaps thought that they would look upon Jesus bloody and beaten and decide that that was punishment enough, but it wasn't. Not for them, not for this demonic crowd under the control of Satan and at the direction of their priests. So what shall I do with him then? And they say, crucify him. The most extreme punishment that the Romans would give. Crucify him. Pilate, knowing that Jesus is innocent, asks them, why? What evil, what has he done? Why should I crucify him? And then the Bible records one of the most chilling statements in all of scripture. But they cried out all the more, crucify him. 
He says, why should I do that? And they give him no answer. They say, do it anyway. Crucify him. They blindly raged against the sinless son of God and demanded that he be nailed to a cross and killed. And then Pilate, being the coward that he was and not wanting to risk a riot, bowed down to the will of the crowd. In our last verse, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Brothers and sisters, words escape us to describe the level of evil that we have witnessed in the text so far. Our Lord was condemned by Pontius Pilate and sentenced to crucifixion. And I read this in one of my commentaries. This is, remember, this is the Roman legal system. This has to be very official. Official. At the end of his trial, Pilate would have sat down in his judgment seat. See the irony there. Pilate sits down in his judgment seat, looks at the Lord Jesus, and tells him, you shall mount to the cross. I consign you to the cross. And the innocent one was condemned for us. As the hymn says, in my place condemned he stood. Now, let's first consider the injustice done to Christ and how it highlights the heinous nature of sin. The Sanhedrin falsely accused him, twisted his words to try to condemn him. The crowd, I hope you can see, blindly hated him. Having no reason to cry for his crucifixion, nevertheless, they shouted all the more. Pilate, being fully convinced that Jesus did not deserve to die, consigns him to the cross anyway in order to preserve his position as governor. All of this was done to the innocent Lord, the innocent one. All of this was done to the one who deserved no mistreatment from anyone. Now, now hear me. It's never okay to wrong anyone. Don't twist my words here. Don't be like the Sanhedrin. It's never okay to wrong anyone. But when we see an evil person wronged by others, we can at least understand somewhat why they did it. Right? Like revenge. When we see a wicked person, we've all seen this happen, a really bad guy that we know receive injustice from others. Sometimes we think, well, that dude had it coming. Right? So like, whatever. I don't really feel bad for him. Eh. Um, That's not right. But we do that sometimes. We do think that sometimes. We need to repent of that. Right? Because injustice should be... A hateful thing in our, in our hearts, but sometimes it's not. But again, we do think it. But with Jesus, none of this makes sense, does it? None of it makes sense. What wrong had he done? What harm had he done? What God-defined offense had he given anyone his entire life? None. None, none, none. He had done no wrong to anyone. The Sanhedrin could find no true charge against him, but they condemned him out of envy. He had only ever done good to the population of Israel, and yet the crowd cries out for his crucifixion. He had never committed a crime against the state, and yet the governor condemns him anyway. None of this makes sense. This highlights how heinous the sin against Christ was that day. It wasn't they couldn't get him on something else, but now they finally got something. No, it's he had never done wrong. He only ever did good, and yet all involved. The, 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 the weak crowd, the powerful pilot, the rich, the poor men, women, young, old, he had never done wrong to anyone, and yet here we see all involved sinning against him. This is despicable. 
a life of pointing people to salvation, healing the sick, raising the dead, helping the poor, loving his neighbor, doing good works. All of this is repaid with lies, cowardice, and shouts for his death on a cross. Those involved in this trial sinned grievously against Christ, for he was innocent and could only ever be charged with doing good. And in light of this, a thought occurred to me this week that I simply couldn't get away from. I don't believe that I'm stretching the text. I just couldn't get this out of my head, so I'm just going to jump into it. Brothers and sisters, all sin is against this innocent Christ. No matter what the sin is, it is against him. Right? He's God, as we've confessed. True God from true God. He is God, and all sin, as David said, is first and foremost against God. Against you, you only have I sinned. So all sin is first and foremost against this innocent Christ who has only ever done good for all men. And yet man sins against him anyway. Is this not grievous? Is this not in its own way? In its own way, is this not just as grievous as those who sinned against him at his trial? He doesn't deserve it and yet mankind does not care. Tell me, tell me. What wrong has he done to make men hate him? What wrong has he done to make men rebel against him? He gives life and breath, food and drink, sunshine and rain, clothes, family, pleasure, laughter, and every other good thing to his creation because he's a kind, benevolent God. And yet, just like the crowd, man hates him without cause and rebels against him with no reason. No reason is given. And whatever reasons that sinful men may give are false accusations and insolent words from petulant children. And against all reason, knowing that he is creator, sustainer, gift giver, gracious king, and judge of all, sinful man still rages against God. Mankind has no reason to hate and rebel against him, and yet that is what we see around us daily. Mankind owes every good thing to Christ. All has come from him to us by grace as a gift, and yet man sins against this good, innocent Christ. See here the sinfulness of sin. See here the madness of sin. Sin does not make sense. And does not sin against such an innocent one deserve hell? Surely it does. Surely the punishment fits the crime. Surely God is just to punish wicked men who sin against the holy and innocent Christ. He has done no wrong to anyone, but has only ever blessed, and yet sinful man rages against him. But brothers and sisters, let's not just look out there. Let me put this to you. How much more heinous is the sin of those who belong to Christ by faith? How much more grievous is the sin of the Christian? The unbeliever rages, mocks, scorns, and rejects him who has shown them common grace. But when we sin, we sin against saving grace and the light of Scripture. We know him in a way that the unbeliever does not and cannot. We know him. We are objects of his saving grace. We are members of his covenant. We know how good and how kind and how innocent he is. We know more than anyone the beauty, holiness, and glory of Christ. And yet, we choose to sin as well. 
Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. This has pierced my heart this past week. What has he ever done to you to make you want to sin against him? What has he ever done to you? What wrong has he done to you to make you want to treat him so badly by sinning against him? Just as we, when we read this text, we're, we're, we're furious and we look at the Sanhedrin, the crowd, and Pilate and say, what did he do to make you hate him? We must also ask ourselves, what wrong has he done to me that I would rebel against him? Christian, he did not deserve to be treated so shamefully that day and he does not to be, deserve to be treated shamefully by us when we choose sin. Now, a, a brief, let me make a, a theological clarification here. I'm not saying that you hurt Jesus when you sin. I don't believe that. I don't. As Job 35, verses 6 and 7 says, If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Those are, those are very good verses. What's it saying? If you disobey God, do you hurt him? No, that's dumb. You can't hurt him. If you obey him, do you give him something he didn't already have? No, you actually you give him nothing whenever you obey him. right? So I'm, I, I'm not saying we hurt Jesus, but I, what I am saying is humanly speaking, what did Jesus ever do to you to make you treat him so badly and sin against him? I want you to think on that. And I, and I want you to remind yourself of that question in the hour of temptation. I actually just used that thought on myself this past week when I was tempted to sin. What did Jesus ever do to me to make me dis disobey him right now? And it was a deterrent for me. And I hope that pointing this out to you will be a deterrent to all of us against temptation to sin. I want us to see the sinfulness of sin. I want us to see how heinous it is. And seeing, I want us to be able to say along with Joseph in Genesis 39, 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I? I want us to think of the innocent Christ and how good he has been to us so that when temptation comes, we can say, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my Lord Jesus? The heinousness of the sin involved in this trial reveals how heinous sin in general is, for it is all against the same man. It's all against the same Christ. Second, let's consider the silent love of Christ. In the face of all this injustice and mistreatment, our Lord remains silent. This reminds us of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He affirmed that he's king of the Jews. He explained that his kingdom is not of this world, but he gives no defense. He gives no defense at the trial. Why the silence? Why the silence? With silence here is for the same reason he was silent at his trial before the Sanhedrin. He has resolved to go to the cross. He has submitted himself to the will of God, and it is the will of God for him to die. It is the will of God for him to be nailed to a tree and bear the curse of our sin, for cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the will of God for him. And so he keeps silent so that he might be condemned. He gave no defense at his trial before Pilate because he had no desire to win the trial. Rather, his desire was to win salvation for us by his blood. He knew, that, he knew that his silence would lead to his condemnation, and so he kept silent in order that he might be condemned for us. 
He kept silence so that he would be counted among the transgressors. That he might be counted guilty for us. Now let's be clear. Pilate was somewhat sympathetic to him at the beginning. And Jesus is the most brilliant man to have ever lived. He is God incarnate. Surely he could have made a defense and walked. He could have appealed to Pilate and molded his will like putty. But he did nothing of the sort. Why? So that he might die for us. All sinners see. See his love for sinners. See his love for you. He desired to save his people. He hasn't come this far to back out now. There is work to be done. There is salvation to be won. And he will not stop until he can cry from the cross. It is finished. And so he remains silent. Because he doesn't desire to save his own life. Rather, he desires to save those whom the Father had given to him. He desired to die. Not, not in a morbid sense, but because by his death he would grant us life. See here in the text, his silence is your salvation. His silence is his love for you. And so here he stands in his silence condemned for us. John Calvin had something beautiful to say here on the text. He said, the son of God stood as a criminal before a mortal man and there permitted himself to be accused and condemned that we may stand boldly before God. Amen. Hear that. The eternal son stood condemned before one of his own creatures. He subjected himself to the lowest of lows and did not defend himself one bit. To paraphrase John Calvin again, by his silence, our mouths are open to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Amen. He allowed himself to be condemned by both Jew and Gentile that he might have mercy on both. That he might have mercy on the world and so he keeps silent before Pilate just as he kept silent before the Jews so that he might go to the cross unhindered. See his love. Stand amazed. There, there has never been a love like this. Oh, please hear me. No one has ever loved you like this. No one has ever loved you like this. Oh, you may have people who love you that would die for you. No one is, no one is willing to sacrifice themselves and suffer the wrath of God for you. No one has ever loved you like this. In his silence, see the proof that he loves you. A third thing for us to consider. This text reveals, we're switching gears. This text reveals the sovereignty of God over the wicked actions of men. This has been a, a constant theme in some private discussions amongst people in our church, and I figured I'd highlight this for you. In Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, our Lord said this. See, rather he prophesied this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Brothers and sisters, everything, and I mean everything, was going exactly according to the plan of God. Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he was delivered over to who? The chief priests and the scribes. Judas betrayed him, and they did what? They condemned him to death at the night trial, and then they did what? They handed him over to the Gentile authorities for his execution. 
He has been at the Sanhedrin trial and will be even more mocked and spit upon. He has been scourged, that is flogged by the Romans, and Pilate sentences him to death in our text. The only thing left is his actual dying and resurrection. Everything up to this point is going according to the will of God. The Sanhedrin. Let me make a clarification here. The, the, the Sanhedrin, the crowd, and Pilate were all sinning horribly in this event. Like, we, 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 we see that. You can't deny that. They are. And yet, in the midst of it, God is working his holy will to save his people. They, I read this in a commentary, this is glorious. They delivered him over to Pilate, but God was delivering him up for us all. Amen. Pilate perverted justice in order to maintain his own position and peace in Jerusalem, but God was at work satisfying divine justice and making peace with God through the blood of his son. The chief priests worked to stir up the crowd to demand his crucifixion, but God was at work causing Christ to bear our curse by hanging on a tree. You see, at the same time these things are happening. All the wicked men involved were unknowingly fulfilling the predestined plan of God to save the world. They were speeding Christ to his cross. I had no idea. They were pushing him toward his glorious work of redemption, and they had no idea what they were doing. They were just doing their own sinful desires that they really wanted to do and that they really chose to do. Then they were grievously sinning against Christ to their own condemnation. And at the exact same time, they were doing exactly what God had predestined to take place for his glory and the good of his people. Read Acts 4. Read Acts 4. This is the confession of the church. Jesus the greater Joseph can say, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. <laughs> they were sinning, yes. They are guilty, yes. They are responsible and must answer to God for their sin, yes. That is all true. I would never deny it. The scriptures are clear. And at the exact same time, they were doing the will of God. In his sinless and unfathomable wisdom, God was using the sinfulness of man to accomplish his good purposes to save sinners. God is sovereign over everything, including sin. God can sinlessly use sin for his own purposes. And you say, I don't know how that's possible. I can't really explain it either, but read the Bible. Deal with it. I have a problem with that. That's your problem. And, and I don't mean that to sound like a jerk, but like that's, that is your problem. The scripture says it. The scripture is clear on it. God is sovereign even over sin. But brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with this. The wicked are always unknowingly accomplishing the purposes of God, whether they like it or not. You know that in some sense this means you can kind of thumb your nose at the world and say, oh, rage against them all you want. You're, you're doing what he says would happen. Rage against them as much as you'd like. His will will be done. Be encouraged by this. Our God cannot be stopped. He will do all his holy will. As the children, children's catechism says, can God do all things? God can do all his holy will. 
Amen. Nothing is ever out of control in this world. As R.C. Sproul said, there is not one maverick molecule in this universe. <laughs> At all. At all. Take comfort in this. Take comfort in this. Nothing is ever out of control. Nothing is ever out of control. Christian, let me, let me put this more to you in your personal life. Have you been wronged? Have you been sinned against? Do you see much evil in this world? Do you see the church of Christ maligned and harmed in the world? Do you see the righteous suffer at the hands of the wicked? Do you have pain? Are you enduring some great trial? Does everything seem black and awful? Maybe. I know I see some of those things. Sin is real. There's no denying it. We all see these things to some degree, but I want you to know this. Our God is at work in the midst of it, saving and sanctifying a people for himself and pushing all things to their ultimate end, to the glory of the crucified Christ. Everything is always going exactly according to his predetermined plan, even sin, even the awful things that you see and have to endure. Nothing, oh, hear me, this is something that I glory in. Nothing is purposeless because God is sovereign. Random is a word for atheists. We have a God who is sovereign and no one can stop him. Everyone is knowingly or unknowingly doing exactly what he has planned to take place. Brothers and sisters, no one can thwart his designs to do you good in the end and glorify himself in it all. Trust him. Look at this trial and see God is sovereign over the wicked actions of men. And say with our Lord Jesus, they mean it for evil, but God means it for good. Now we come to a fourth thing. And I think it's the greatest thing for us to consider from this text. This gets me hyped up. There's a picture of the gospel here for us that I am, am so dumb and never saw before. The crowd cried out for Barabbas, and Barabbas was set free and lived. But our Lord had to take his place. Barabbas lived because Jesus died. Jesus took his place. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. Consider with me, Jesus wasn't the only man crucified that day. There were two others with him. Barabbas was in prison with other men who were also insurrectionists. It is not unreasonable to think that Barabbas was supposed to be crucified that day as part of the insurrection, especially because the other two men are called robbers or insurrectionists. If that's the case, then we see that Jesus went to the cross that Barabbas was supposed to hang upon. Barabbas should have died that day, but Jesus died instead. Barabbas, though guilty, was treated as innocent, and Jesus, the innocent, was condemned as guilty. What a picture of the work of our Lord. The rebel murderer goes free, and the innocent Son of God dies instead. Brothers and sisters, if you haven't caught on, you are Barabbas. Uh, so am I. We're the ones worthy of death. We're the ones who are guilty. And praise God, we are the ones who go free as our Lord hangs on our cross. We are the ones who live as he dies our death. We are the ones who escape judgment as he suffers our punishment from God. Beloved, this is the gospel. Jesus in your place.
Oh, put that in your heart. That is the gospel. Jesus in your place. Substitution is the favorite concept of the Christian. Jesus, our substitute, suffered God's wrath for our sin and died in our place. Jesus suffered and died in our room instead for our sins. He took our sin on himself and he traded us places. Blessed substitution. Glorious substitution. Jesus took our place. Hear me, we don't grow past this. Some people say, no, that's what gets you into Christianity. No, that's what keeps you in Christianity. This is our religion. We don't move on to deeper and better things. This is the thing. This is our theme. This is our constant meditation. This is our amazement. This is our song. This is our joy. Jesus in our place. As the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What is that? Jesus in our place. As Charles Spurgeon once said, and you better give your amen to him, my entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. Amen. Oh, don't ever lose your wonder at this. This is the most blessed truth in all the word of God. Jesus died for you. We are all by nature in the same position as Barabbas. Guilty, murderous, wicked, deserving of the wrath of God. But Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that text because it's so honest. You maybe will die for a good person. Maybe. Probably not. Maybe you'll die for a good person. But God shows his love for us and that while we were rebels, while we were Barabbas, Christ died for us. As J.C. Ryle said, let us bless God that we have such a glorious salvation set before us. Our plea must ever be not that we are deserving of acquittal, but that Christ has died for us. Amen. Christ in our place is our only plea, and it is our only plea because he actually did it. He died for all who would believe upon him. Glory. And we now come to the final point of this sermon. And it serves us as application today. And this is the choice between Jesus and Barabbas. The crowd had to choose, and the choice was put before them. Jesus or Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer. He's something of a freedom fighter, fighting against Rome, fighting for Jewish independence. In a sense, he, he offered the Jews the opportunity for political freedom. And for our purposes this morning, I want you to see this. Barabbas offered them the world. He offered them the thing that they wanted, political freedom. But Jesus, the king of the Jews, the savior, the son of God, offered something heavenly. As I just talked about, he offered himself in your place. He offered salvation to all who come to him. He offered truth. He offered peace with God. He offered eternal citizenship in his kingdom, untold comforts in the Holy Spirit, eternal and heavenly things. He offered better things, for he himself is better. But the crowd chose the earthly. 
The crowd chose the transient and earthly instead of the heavenly. They wanted what Barabbas was offering. They wanted a would-be political savior over the savior of the world. They wanted Barabbas, the son of the father. That's what that means. They wanted the earthly son of the father instead of the son of the father. And so the world, rather the crowd, chose Barabbas. Dear congregation, we must likewise choose. Christ or the world? Christ or something less? Many people choose their own personal Barabbas over Jesus. They, they choose something earthly over Christ. They choose some earthly pursuit or pleasure uh, over the Lord of glory and Savior of those who believe. And they perish in their sins for it. But please hear me, as I hope that I drove through in that last point that I made. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can free you from slavery to sin and Satan. Only Jesus can deliver you from death. Only Jesus can save you from hell. Only Jesus can give you peace with God that is more precious than anything in this world that money cannot buy. You must choose the world or Christ. I beg you, I, I know I don't know all of you here this morning. I beg you, if you don't know Christ, come to him. He is better. He is better. He's the only one who died for you. He's the only one who switched you places. He's the only innocent one who deserves your allegiance. Choose him. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, you need to choose him for the first time. Repent of your sins and trust that he died in your place and was raised on the third day and be reconciled to God through faith in him. And if you're a believer, the call remains the same to you. Choose him. Choose him every day because he's better. So may God give us all wills to choose the blessed Lord Jesus, for he is worthy. Amen. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious things that we've seen this morning. God, I pray that you would seal them to our hearts. Help us to choose Christ, the one who died for us, the one who loves us, the one who is innocent and worthy. Grant that we would choose him. Grant that we would live for him. And help us to see him more clearly as we behold the text, that we might love him more, for he is worthy of all our love. He's worthy of more than we can give. We thank you for him. We pray in his name. Amen.